When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On with Devin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. We head to the White House to check in with Bharat Ramamurti, the Deputy Director of the National Economic Council, on an historic day as the House sends the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill to President Biden's desk. I was up on Capitol Hill all throughout the day, and I'll give you our latest reporting on that front. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We begin tonight with the big story, and that, of course, is the House of Representatives voting earlier this afternoon to send the $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal bill to President Biden's desk. President Biden cheered the final House passage of the massive stimulus bill, and he spoke from the White House and noted that he will sign the bill in a White House ceremony on Friday. Here's the sound of the president's reaction. This bill represents a historic, historic victory for the American people. I look forward to signing it later this week. More vaccines, more vaccinators, and more vaccination sites. Millions more Americans will get tested. Schools will soon have the funding and resources to reopen safely. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also weighed in and spoke with regards to the bill's passage. Take a listen to the sound on that. So it was collaborative. We had the leadership of our chairs, House and Senate, and we had the intellectual resources of the committee members, again, with the help of the staff, this would, which would have never had this bill be possible without the staff working so hard. Republican reaction was a different tune. While the Democrats were celebrating the bill's passage, uh, uh, Senate, Senator Mitch McConnell, the top Republican in the Senate, had this to say. The $1.9 trillion package, as we said repeatedly, only had about 1% or less for vaccines, 9% or less for health care. So I think this is actually one of the worst pieces of legislation I've seen pass here in the time I've been in the Senate. I think the most distinct features are the following. Number one, it solved New York's budget problem. So finally, some good news for Governor Cuomo. 
Um, Senator Schumer has solved his financial issues. So mixed reaction. Democrats like it. Republicans do not. Let's head now to the White House for the deputy director of the National Economic Council, Bharat Ramamurti. He is uh, uh, we're thrilled to have him on on such a a crucial, crucial day uh, of economic news. Uh, Bharat, I mean, I'll start with, first of all, when are people going to get their stimulus checks? That's probably the, the most pressing question I got from outside of the Beltway today. Yeah, we're hearing that a lot, too, <laughs> Kevin. Uh, so what the president has made clear is that uh, he'll sign the bill on Friday, and our expectation is that people should start receiving payments before the end of the month. Uh, if, if you uh, have gotten a direct deposit from the IRS before, so, for example, in the form of a tax refund that was directly deposited into your account, um, those folks are likely to, to receive their payments first, uh, just because the IRS already has that connection. Uh, but but we would expect uh, payments to start going out before the end of the month. You know, I'm I'm in my Bloomberg terminal right now, and and they actually crunch the numbers about the effect that the stimulus bill will have on GDP uh, over the next several quarters. Uh, how will this bill help to spur GDP growth? Well, look, I think a lot of independent analysts have taken a look at it, and uh, and the answer is that it will have a pretty significant effect. Uh, you know, Moody's has talked about. Um, how it will create an additional seven or, or produce additional seven million jobs uh, in the year ahead. Uh, you know, the, the CBO uh, said that without action, it would take uh, you know four or five years to get back to the unemployment rate that we had pre-pandemic. You know, independent experts have looked at this, like at Brookings, and found that we will get back to that pre-unemployment, the pre-pandemic unemployment rate uh, next year instead. So you know, significantly accelerate things. So uh, you know, our our view is that. Giving American families the support that they need to get through to the other side of this pandemic is not only the right thing to do morally; it's also the right thing to do economically. So, uh, you know, and and you heard the the p- political reaction to this, and and I know that you know you're an economist, so I, you know I don't want to go too far into this, but the notion that Republicans are making is that they feel this was too much money. I think Governor Scott. Or I'm sorry, uh, down in Florida, uh, they're urging uh, the Republicans are urging that states return uh, all of the additional funds that are not related to COVID back to the government. I, what do you say to Republicans who are arguing that this is this price tag is just too much? Well, I would say that uh, you know, number one, this was a bottom-up package, and by that I mean uh, we took a look at the needs uh, of the American people. And, and, and uh, proposed a certain amount of money accordingly. So, for example, we said, uh, you know, 7 million Americans are behind on, on rent and, and at, at risk of eviction. Mm. So what's it going to take to make sure that they can get money to stay current on their payments and stay in their homes in the middle of the pandemic? Uh, and we put that into the package. And I think that that sort of bottom-up approach um, uh, has resonated with the American people. You know, even as of today, uh, even with... Uh, some Republicans launching some criticisms in Washington, um, the, the package is still receiving the support of 70 plus percent of the American people, including a significant portion uh, of Republican voters across the country. And so I think that the American people recognize that this is a package that's well designed to, to fit the needs that the country has right now. It really is remarkable. And I think I think the, the conversation in Washington 
uh, as you alluded to, uh, the polls suggest that this was an incredibly popular piece of legislation. Senator Rick Scott uh, of Florida was the one who issued the call for the governors uh, to return and mayors to return to Washington. Any any funding that's in excess of federally reimbursable COVID-19 related expenses. You know, uh, for, for the middle class, beyond the stimulus checks, which, all right, I asked you about, you know, when are they going to get them? Uh, but beyond just the additional funds uh, for schools and for vaccination distribution. How else, Bharat Ramamurti, uh, over at the White House, Deputy Director of the National Economic Council, how else will this stimulus bill, in your view, help the economy return to normal, not just in the long term, but over the next couple of weeks as millions of more Americans are getting the vaccine? Right. Well, I think, number one, uh, as we've already seen, uh, the key to, to getting the economy going in many ways is to get the virus under control. Yeah. And and the Biden administration has already substantially increased the rate of vaccinations in terms of getting shots into people's arms. Um, you know, over the last several days, uh, we've been hitting two million shots or more, uh, which is a substantial increase relative to where we were, uh, you know, uh, late last year. Uh, that, that really matters. And, and we're, we're focused on getting folks who are older, who are at more risk from COVID vaccinated, and that's helping bring down uh, hospitalizations uh, as well. You know, number two, uh, in addition to the checks that are going to go out, as, as I said, uh, before the end of the month for many folks, uh, the, the, the plan includes a substantial increase in the child tax credit. You know, what we've seen is that families with children uh, have been hit pretty hard during the crisis and, and you know, kids themselves. Um, have had to go through a lot, and parents of kids have had to go through a lot. I speak from experience, at least on, as somebody who's dealing with uh, a couple of kids uh, of school age. <laughs> and, and I think that, um, you know, providing additional support for, for families with children um, is a big priority uh, of the president, and that's why there's an expansion of the child tax credit, uh, which means that uh, for every kid uh, under the age of 18, uh, families will get an additional $3,600 a year. Um and for kids under the age of six, it will be $3,000 a year. Uh, and that represents a substantial increase from the payments uh, available under that tax credit currently. Um, and, and our hope would be that those uh, payments would go out periodically, not just in one lump sum. So that's something else for families to keep an eye on uh, in, the, in the weeks and months ahead. Well, and I think it's just crucial just from an analytical standpoint, just about how – uh, how much the middle class is really hurting right now. Uh, President Biden is going to be headed to Delco, my hometown, Delco, next Tuesday. It was just announced uh, uh, to to uh, a tour, a 10-state tour, the White House is calling it, uh, to, to tout the success uh, of what uh, the administration is saying the economic impacts will have uh, from the stimulus. He's going to make uh, a major address tomorrow night, I believe, and then have that signing ceremony on Friday. Uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen, uh, I, I caught her on MSNBC earlier today, and she made, a, I thought, an important point about when the labor market and when unemployment is going to return to normal. I think that is on the minds of so many millions of Americans is when will the job market return to the pre-pandemic level? She said end of 2022. Uh, that is what a lot of estimates are saying. Is that would you agree with that timetable? When can the economy go back to the pre-pandemic uh, environment? Yeah, well, I'm certainly not going to disagree with Secretary Yellen. <laughs> There's way more about economics than I do. Um, and that, that sounds right to me. And I think the point that, that she always makes, which is a really important one to keep in mind, is that um, you know long-term unemployment is a serious problem for, for workers. Folks who are long-term unemployed, the, the data shows it's harder for them 
um, to get back to the wages that they were making before. There's yep. these long-term scarring effects. So really yep. making sure that people are not long-term unemployed is a real priority of, of the secretaries and of the president. And I think that a part of the economic case for this package is that by gearing the economy back up quickly, getting uh, relief to families, uh, we're going to reduce the number of long-term unemployed in a way that's going to have really important uh, long-term benefits. And it's all about the psychology of the American worker right now. And I think that you just hit it on the head. Regardless of what party you're in, uh, the psychology of the American worker, especially in industries that were just pummeled by this horrific pandemic, uh, just on the minds of everyone. Bharat Ramamurthy, uh, Deputy Director of the National Economic Council. Thank you, Bharat, uh, truly, for coming on uh, such a historic day. Uh, and I know that your entire team worked incredibly hard and around the clock uh, f- from on this particular bill. So uh, I appreciate you joining me on this program uh, for a very notable day. That's Bharat Ramamurthy. He is the Deputy Director of the National Economic Council. Coming up, we head to Capitol Hill. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by my colleague, Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. And we are thrilled to be joined by our next guest. He is Congressman Don Beyer, a Democrat representing Virginia's 8th District, which includes Arlington, uh, Alexandria, Falls Church, and parts of Fairfax County, Northern Virginia, uh, for those who are familiar with the Beltway. Congressman, great to be with you. Uh, great to have you, you back on the, uh, on the program. And I got to ask you, I was up on Capitol Hill today for the, for the big vote. The vote, the stimulus vote. And Republicans don't like it, Congressman. And in fact, Senator uh, uh, Scott of Florida, he's saying that uh, states and mayors around the country should return the money that isn't impacted by COVID. So what is it? Is the bill too much or is it not big enough? No, I think it's just about right, Kevin. Goldilocks. It, uh, yeah, Goldilocks. Yeah, we worked really hard on it. And uh, when you say Republicans don't like it, it seems like Republican elected officials in Washington don't want to give Joe Biden a win. But the Republicans out there in real America, I think, like it just fine. I keep seeing surveys that show 60 percent, 65 percent. And I think they're really going to like it when, you know, they, they, they see it not only in the checks that arrive at their home, but in the extension of unemployment benefits, bulking up local governments who have really been hurt by the pandemic. And, 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 Kevin, the best part is we just lifted, uh, reduced child poverty in America by 50%. One fell swoop. Wow. I've talked to so many people today who felt this may be the most important bill they've ever voted on in their lives, me included. So you are the vice chairman of the Joint Economic Committee, specifically for small businesses and for folks who are listening out there who are directly impacted from the small business perspective what what is in this one this massive bill that can help them? Well, the biggest thing I think is that it uh, by putting 1.9 trillion more into the economy, we're going to be putting a lot more people back to work, and especially the people we're going to be putting back to work are the people sort of in the lower third, uh, lots and lots of women who have been disproportionately affected, people in the service industries. So this is going to help. Uh, well. You know, watch for a surge in new and used car sales. 
which I think this bill is going to make happen. And as, as a car dealer, I can see. So I was just going to say that. I was like, a good thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 I was like, didn't you work at a, <laughs> or you yeah, are a car yeah, dealer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't anymore, but yeah. Yeah, I sold that to my brother. But yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've no, no stake in it other than pride. Yeah. Uh, and you also, you know, we still have 10 million people unemployed, um, you know, 10, 10 million fewer, 9 million fewer than a year ago. Um, and like a third of them have been unemployed for more than 26 weeks. So, this extension of unemployment benefits as needed is really going to be helpful. All right, but i got to ask you, because I, when I talk to Republicans, what they tell me, Congressman Beyer, is, okay, well, we're taking on way too much debt. We can't afford it. We can't afford it over the long term, and the best way to get the economy back on track is to reopen. You're, you know. Well, yeah. And I think there's I, some I like-minded people I, who, would agree, yeah. who would, you know, go ahead. I, I totally agree with that, which is why there's $20 billion in there for vaccines and vaccine distribution. We've come a long way, but we still have, you know, what, 75% of Americans not vaccinated. And uh, I am, and I tell you what, it, it feels really good. Um, and then also we're, we have money in there to open up the schools. You know, the number of the schools have opened already, and the, the resistance right now are older and more fragile teachers who are reluctant to go back until, until the schools are safe. And so we're doing that also. Congressman, this is Rick Davis. Uh, again, thank you for being on the show, and thank you for representing Northern Virginia, where I live so well. Uh, you almost had me wanting to go buy a Volvo real quick, but uh, I, I wanted to change topic I'm a little in, bit. I'm in the district, Rick, and let me tell you, we're not reopened, but go ahead. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and just sort of moving through the sequence of, of discussion you're having with Kevin is, um, you know, we've, we're spending $1.9 trillion. You know, Speaker Pelosi says we're going to put a trillion dollars in people's pockets. They may go buy a new car. Uh, but the Republicans are taking the position, you know, and finally they're, they're starting to think about the, the deficit. And, 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 and we're going to have a big road show. They're going to sign the bill on Friday. Uh, we're going to go sell it to the American public. And I agree with you. I think the public already uh, supports this bill. But then the next day we're going to start talking about infrastructure again. And we see from, you know, the CE, the civil engineers, that they think about $3 trillion is needed for propping up our infrastructure and moving forward. And you're on Ways and Means. I mean, at what point are you looking at the unpopular decision to maybe put taxes on in order to be able to afford something like a infrastructure bill, realizing that a popular bill like this only passed by nine votes in the House? Yeah, you're, and, and Rick, I think you're absolutely right. My sense, and you know, I'm not totally in charge of one of 535, um, but that if we do a big infrastructure bill, which we all want to do on both sides, uh, desperately needed, is that we're going to have to pay for some or all of it. And uh, there's a lot of different ideas out there, including you know, Joe Biden talked about you know, not restoring the corporate tax rate to 35, but maybe back up to 27 or 28. Um, looking at just the whole variety of, of ways to adjust taxes to help pay for this. And, you know, we've not wanted to do it right now while the economy is still partially closed and you have all these people unemployed. But, you know, the world could look a little different in 90 days. Or, and, and I think most people think the infrastructure bill won't come to fruition until, you know, June, July. Um, de definitely before August. Though. Do you think... Uh, you know, especially from a geopolitical standpoint, as we move forward with infrastructure that Rick's talking about and also 
trying to realign some of the trade discussion and reset some of the trade rhetoric uh, with China, for example. Uh, do you think that that is going to be able, or how how do you, how do you do that? I guess that's the broader question because here you've yeah. got the administration saying they want the United States to diversify its supply chain from China, and you, of course, are a member of the uh, uh, subcommittee on trade on ways and means. Secretary Blinken's headed to Alaska next week uh, to meet with uh, some some of his Beijing counterparts. How do you be tough on China while also acknowledging that they're the, the world's second largest economy? Yeah, that's got to be the most difficult question in politics today. Yep. Because uh, where I want us to move is, is to a you know, strategic partnership and competition with China. Stay far away from the military conflicts um, and, and try to get them to come into the 21st century and have it you know, trading systems with integrity. Um, but the human rights violations are so upsetting to, to most Americans, including me. You know, the, the problem with the Uyghurs and the concentration camps and the way they're treating Hong Kong, the threats to Taiwan. Um, China, we, we want them to play by our rules, and it's really hard when they don't. Congressman, uh, it's a really good point you make about um, whose rules does China play by, and we see a lot of activity there now about their five-year plan and what they expect to do uh, to be competitive uh, all around the world. And uh, coming up, uh, our Secretary of State, uh, uh, Mr. Blinken, is going to go to Alaska and meet with his Chinese counterparts. Uh, If you had a chance to write the script for Blinken, what would be the two things that would be high on your list for him to directly make an impact for the first time in this administration with Chinese? I would say, number one, here's the behavior that we want you to do. We don't need to change you know, regime change or even change the, the character of the government. It's not what we want, but what the hell. Um, but we do want them to play by international rules when it comes to both human rights and, and, and trade stuff. And then number two is to say, you know, we're going to unite the rest of the world, um, J- Japan, South Korea, Australia, all, all of the EU, et cetera, um, not against you, but as a bulwark, um, an economic bulwark uh, that, that will be counterposed to, to China's economy. So you don't get to push the rest of us around. We are we can be a larger force than you and, and create incentives to, to come in and join us. Let's take a listen to uh, what White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki had to say about the U.S. and China relationship earlier today in the Brady briefing room. Here's the sound on China from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The meeting uh, also provides an opportunity to emphasize how the United States will stand up for the rules-based international system and a free and open Indo-Pacific. As the president has said, we approach our relationship with the Chinese from a position of strength and in lockstep with our allies and partners. I mean, there you have it. I mean, they're they're, they're talking about all the, to reset the tone with the international coalitions and and whatnot. And Congressman Don Byers with us. He represents Nova, not Villanova, Nova, Northern Virginia. Um, I've been interviewing you for years. As, yeah, I wish I could have said it as well as Jen Saki just said it. <laughs> that was beautiful. This this was a quiz. And, 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 <laughs> yeah, and one of the problems with the Trump administration is you got Trump. Going from their their uh, you know the, the the modern day version of the axis of evil to uh, I love Chi and is my best friend and we couldn't figure out which was which. So they would argue it was by design when I talked to Trump World, but I but but I 
but your point is is a really interesting one um as we talk about just the broader conversation as a whole you're on another commit you're on a subcommittee on space and anyone who knows me knows that i'm a huge space nerd and i and i'm not going to ask you if there's life out there but i will ask you seriously <laughs> seriously from a from a, a a standpoint of of china cooperation for example we're in the midst of hack after hack after hack it seems i mean what what should the united states be doing to secure not just NASA from a, from cyber hacks and, and whatnot, but also um, now the increasingly private sector's exploration of space to make sure that it's, you know, cyber secure. Yeah, it, it's going to be a huge point of investment. I heard today that yep. uh, the, uh, Jamie Dimon's firm has 3,000 people just working on cybersecurity uh, for his one bank. Wow. Um, you know, this, again, is a is a place that's incredibly fertile opportunity for us to be working closely with the Chinese to, to show that this is uh, ultimately a zero-sum game or, or negative-sum game. Everybody gets hurt. Because if we start responding in kind, you know, we can destroy their economy faster than they can destroy ours. And, and this is just not helpful for anybody. So and, I mean- and by bringing integrity to, to, to cyber, we give a chance to let all the benefits of, of the digital universe come through to everybody. So I, when I spoke with uh, uh, both Republicans and Democrats over the last couple of weeks on, on cybersecurity, uh, Rick Davis and, and, and Congressman, uh, I'm curious for your uh, thoughts on this. The one thread, Rick, that emerges is that there needs to be rules of the road. The same way, and it was Chairman Warner of Virginia, of the Intel Committee, who said it on this program, the same way that when there is an armed conflict, uh, folks know not to, to blow up a Red Cross vehicle. That doesn't exist in the cyberspace, Rick Davis. Yeah, it's a bit like the Wild West, as, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, Senator Warner, uh, uh, Congressman Byers, colleague in Virginia, uh, chairman of the Intelligence Committee, has made a big initiative to try and get the U.S. some consensus in government, at least, around what those standards should be. Uh, at what point... Do you start turning off the spigot to economic activity if people aren't playing by some set of rules uh, around what is and isn't appropriate as far as cyber activity? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's actually creating an enormous amount, trillions of dollars in lost revenue for, for the Western world uh, when their secrets are stolen, either economic, financial, industrial uh, and, and, and this can't continue to go unabated. And it was something that Trump talked a lot about when he was president, but didn't do much about it. And I think it's really incumbent on this administration and this Congress to take a big lead in that regard. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think Senator Warner is right on the button. We need the equivalent of Geneva Accords, Geneva Convention, for, di- for the digital space. And we, d- we need to do it without killing 10 or 12 million people to get there. I mean, but, uh, what about, an, and, and I say this... I say this kind of, you know, and I, I don't mean to sound too out there, but what about laying the groundwork for a similar type of dynamic as, as space increasingly becomes more privatized? Is there, is there work being done for that, for the future of that, those problems that likely will arise? Yeah, I mean, there's a, some done already. You know, for example, we passed a bill in the Space Subcommittee Science Committee a couple of years ago on uh, when private companies go mine asteroids, who gets to keep it? Um, but we need something parallel, and there's certainly a, a, um, a, an international agreement on the moon uh, and spheres of influence, um, not unlike what we have, say, at, at the South Pole. 
Um, but we have to do a lot more. And, you know, the, probably the best reason for the best um, rationale for Trump standing up the Space Force um, was the concern about the militarization of space, that we don't want that to happen, but we need to be prepared if the Russians or the Chinese do. All right, Congressman Don Beyer, I'm going to have to leave it there, Democrat from Virginia's 8th District. And, uh, you know, next time, well, I, maybe I'll have the opportunity to buy you a ticket to space one day, you know? <laughs> well, not well, a car, I'm, but... I'm chairing the space subcommittee now. Right. So if you want to be on the, the Artemis trip, just let me know. I do. My answer uh, is yes. Send me, tomorrow, so. send me, send me up there now. I'm ready to go. Send me on the rocket. <laughs> All right. They <laughs> I've said it. Radio on the moon. I'm sure. I, I, hey, I'll do a live shot. Send me up with a live view, <laughs> Bloomberg. Uh, thanks, Congressman Don Beyer. Rick Davis. I mean, I think it's interesting, and I know people are probably thinking, "What is he doing talking about you know space on Economic Stimulus Day?" But it is. I mean, when you've got hack after hack after hack, and then every single day, you know, we're watching the Elon Musk rockets go up and whatnot. I mean, this is the. I keep saying this. Where is the policy discourse for the future, the post-pandemic economy? I mean, there's a lot of money that's in this bill that President Biden's going to sign tomorrow. I don't see anything for retraining. I don't see anything for for laying the groundwork. And I think that's one of the questions that behind the scenes, when I talk to staffers, that they're most concerned about on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. And I think this is a classic example, Kevin, of uh, bypassing the private sector and thinking that that somehow government's going to have a solution to all these problems. The, The reality is on these kinds of things, the the employment factor, the private sector is going to be the ones who create these jobs. I mean, we can put money into unemployment insurance and $1,400 checks for Americans to help bolster the economy and create spending. But in order to get people back to work, the private sector has to come to the table and create jobs. And if there's indecision on the part of Congress as to what a corporate tax rate is going to be, what new regulations are going to be applied, there could be hesitancy. Uh, on what the private sector can do in order to get people back to work in the jobs of the future. And space is booming. I think your point is exactly right. But it has to be secure. A lot of data flying through the air has got to be impenetrable Mm -hmm. from people who want to use cybersecurity for their own benefit. And just uh, to follow up on that point, I mean, and I'm really obsessed with this Senator Rick Scott story uh, of Florida. And he spoke to my colleague David Weston yesterday, I believe, a great interview just about about the the coronavirus uh, relief package and his opposition to it. But now he's come out and said, Rick Davis, that any state that receives funds that are not related to COVID-19, that the, the states and mayors should send the money back. Smart politics? Or is it, you know, maybe not? I, I maybe not. Um, let's take an example, right? Child tax. This is credit. fascinating. This Child- is see. This is John McCain's campaign manager talking real talk on politics. Go ahead. Yeah, and this is a guy who loved to cut the budget, and we always <laughs> got gas for the things he wanted to cut. Um, Child tax credit, three thousand to three thousand six hundred dollars a year for families. This is how. Uh, Congressman Byer was describing you cut the uh, child uh, poverty rate in half. Um, what governor is going to say, oh, I'm not going to give families who are in right. poverty $3,600 a year that actually is sitting in an account to be distributed? No way. Don't let that come to my state. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And so 
there there it's a it's a great political stunt until someone starts saying well wait a minute that money was for me that you were going to give back to the federal government and why in the world do i want the federal government to have more money i want the money i mean there's a transition of wealth happening here and 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 you have to rely on the economic experts who are saying uh, we need that in our in our economy in order to you know be able to come back not is all it, of it is going to be efficient is it smart politics for a senator to make that argument and versus a governor or a mayor because he's let's, a senator he doesn't have control <laughs> over yeah, whether but let's just say if i were uh, running a campaign against him either in the primary or the general election i'd be doing high fives with everybody on my campaign team right now because <laughs> i think that was a crazy thing to suggest well be, and then and, and to follow up on that i mean I, I said this to my colleague jonathan farrow uh and tom Keane and lisa bramowitz on bloomberg surveillance earlier but i i, I i've noticed that Republican governors right now seem to be the architects of the messaging for the midterm cycle, much more so than the Republicans in Congress who are quite honestly caught in an interest squabble Republican fight, uh, post-Trump, all that whole saga. But the governors, Texas, Florida, Maryland, they seem to be pushing for reopening. And I just, I, I'm noticing this nuance where it seems that the Republican governors seem to be gaining more authority for the direction of the party. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's where the future leadership of our party is. And that's usually where a lot of the good ideas in our party come from, right? For policy uh, are the governors who are out there closer to the electorate um, working to try and solve problems. And, and I would say a great example is exactly what you were talking about with Senator Scott's idea. Uh, this all happened once before when uh, President Obama expanded Medicare. A lot of the governors said, well, yep. Republican governors, I'm not going to do that. About half of them did it and got credit from their states for doing it. And then the other half mostly did it in the quiet of night a month or two later when nobody was looking. Mm. And so you just have to be careful what standard you set. But I expect that mayors and governors are going to have an enormous influence on the direction of the economy in their states, but also the ideas nationally that that are going to benefit us coming out of this economic uh, situation we're in because of COVID. As COVID changes, those economies are going to change, and, and the governors are going to probably take advantage of that first. It's like my dad always, back in Delco, always tells me, money talks, but you don't always have to listen. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Biden's going to Delco next week. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Democratic strategist Kevin Walling. You know, Rick, I, I alluded to this yesterday, but I did not have enough time and I really wanted to hit it. Um, and that is one of my favorite journalists passed away uh, yesterday. Uh, 
Roger Mudd. He was 93 years old, just a total rock star, a total icon. Uh, and I love this quote because I, I was reflecting on his career, Rick Davis, which has spanned decades, some of the biggest sto stories in American history. And he wrote in a Princeton um, a, a journalism textbook, for lack of a better word, uh, and he wrote really poignantly, given what the media have put the country through, it must come as a surprise to most Americans that the press has a code of ethics. I thought it was such a powerful quote, uh, Rick Davis. Did you ever work with Roger Mudd? Uh, yeah, I've had the yeah. uh, um, pleasure of uh, 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 being around uh, being around Roger. He's an icon in mm -hmm. political press, especially. Uh, and he is the most feared man in the political press for a long time because wow. he's the one who asked Ted Kennedy when he was running for the president, yeah. why do you want to be president? And yep. Kennedy couldn't answer the question. And so after that, every single campaign manager like me who's ever had anybody <laughs> run for president, the very first thing we do is give them the mud question. <laughs> That's called the mud question. There you go. I didn't know that. that, that, that you just heard it from one of the uh, pr pr prominent Republican architects right there uh the mud question but such a, a crucial legacy so roger mud uh thoughts and prayers to to his family and uh you have many admirers all right let's talk about a big meeting that happened at the uh white house uh because president biden today uh hosted the ceos of merck and j and j at a white house event and he said that the deal is nearly unprecedented remember merck had agreed to help with producing the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine to help quickly boost supplies. I mean, to have this meeting on the day of the, the stimulus passage, Kevin Walling, I mean, I, I, whether you agree with Biden or not, he got what he wanted today. He absolutely did, Kevin. It's great to be with you. I mean, he's riding high, of course, too, not just that uh, meeting at three that we saw with the CEOs of those two big pharmaceutical companies, but he got Merrick Garland as his attorney general. He got Marsha Fudge as his HUD secretary, of course. You know, the, the, the previous one being Merrick Garland being, the, I, I think, more uh, at least important in terms of uh, the, the president's agenda and, and just the, the thought behind getting Merrick Garland finally through a Senate committee uh, after he was derailed for that Supreme Court justice position. But, of course, you know, the president and his administration are, are running high 50 days in, and you're going to see the president, I think, with a forward-looking speech, as aides uh, are talking about it, uh, for tomorrow night's primetime address to the, to the country from the Oval Office. Well, let's take a listen to the sound on this from President Biden from the Merck and, and J&J meeting. Here he is. We're seeing two health companies, competitors, each with over 130 years of experience, coming together to help write a more hopeful chapter in our battle against COVID-19. How, how unprecedented is this for, for Merck and J&J, Rick Davis? You know, I think in times of critical national need, like during wartime and things like that, companies tend to set aside their competitive uh, uh, interests and, and, and pull one for the country. Uh, this is clearly a big deal uh, because it's a life-saving measure uh, domestically. And, and, and I think, you know, both companies should be given kudos for uh, being able to co collaborate like this. And, 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 I'm, and good for the Biden administration to really, it's a teaching moment, right? I mean, like we can all pull together as Americans, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you're, you know, uh, one company versus another company in competition, uh, because we do have a common set of values that are uh, worth defending. And so I, I do think today uh, just was a day steeped in that. Um, um, uh, Kevin mentioned the uh, 
the uh, the nomination and confirmation of uh, Merrick Garland. Mm-hmm. 70 votes for Merrick Garland, who could not even get an audience when he was nominated for the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, lots of Republican support. 20 Republicans crossed the aisle and said, yeah, we're for him. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to play politics on this nomination. So, I mean, it was it was a, a, a brilliant day for the the Biden administration, if the common theme was doing something right for the country today. Merrick Garland got more Republican support, Kevin Walling, than Republicans supported the stimulus. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, zero Republicans in both the House and House and Senate uh, actually supported it. Um, and, you know, he picked up some key votes in the Senate committee, too. Um, so, again, I think it also will be a good talking point for this administration um, as they move forward into more treacherous territory when it comes to investigating uh, the previous administration, which is undoubtedly going to happen, whether it's state's attorneys, you know, what have you. Um, the fact that 20 Republicans, as Rick point out, uh, points out, cross party lines to support uh, Merrick Garland, I think is going to be helpful just in terms of the optics with the Department of Justice going forward as well. Kevin Walling, I mean, as you look for, I mean, you, you, I, I always see you on Fox News, but you always, uh, you have your, ear to to the right as well as the left how significant are the charges of this stimulus bill being too much money are they resonating with suburban democrats or do they feel that the polls suggest that the bill itself is so popular uh that it's not going to be in effect yeah i think i think the, the merits of the bill you know you're seeing the polling that's fairly consistent somewhere between 35 and 45 percent of republicans are still on board for the entirety of the package uh, that passed but you know, you, you ask right-wing audiences, and they're more consumed. And, you know, you're, I'm on Fox nearly every day. That we're talking about Dr. Seuss. We're talking about Andrew Cuomo and the, and the merits of the investigation uh, into, uh, you know, the different allegations that have been leveled against the governor, and not much about uh, COVID-19, uh, this, this res- rescue package. So, you know, I think you're going to see maybe that change. Of course, as midterm politics already start to, to come to fruition here. Uh, but again, I think Republicans really lost out in their opportunity in terms of gathering and, and galvanizing this movement against this bill. And it was a little too late um, with Republican audiences really focused on other things. Besides OK, but this, I have to press you uh, on $2 this. Dollar package. I have to press you on this, Kevin Walling, and, and we're always appreciative of you coming on the program. But I put this to every question, including at the top of the show, to White House officials, left, right, uh, over the past several weeks. There's nothing in this bill for retraining workers. So, I mean, I'm thinking of Delco, where President Biden is headed next week on Tuesday. It was just announced by the White House, and he's going to tout uh, the effects for the middle class that this bill has. I get it. Stimulus checks and whatnot. What about those refinery workers who, as a result of the Keystone Pipeline, lost a job and are just expected now to be retrained, but there's no effort for retraining? Is that, uh, how does that mesh? Yeah, it's a good point, Kev. I mean, I, I think this package is a Band-Aid, right? I mean, you've got supplemental food insurance, you've got child uh, tax credits. Um, and, and I think we, we maybe have dropped the ball when it comes to retraining, when it comes to mm. vocational um, education um, as part of this package. I think it's to repair a lot of the gaps we're seeing in the economy with what uh, we need to put in front of Americans, especially with it comes to, when it comes to uh, Internet access for children, when it comes to, again, as I said, access to nutrition and food and, and raising 40% of the kids but in you poverty gotta out retrain. of poverty. Rick, I mean, I hate to years. interrupt Kev. Exactly but- right. You're, but, you're absolutely right. And, and Kev, hopefully that's part of this next pivot to infrastructure. That oh, it won't they're just not. Be building, that it won't just be building pipelines and, and 
windmills and um, broadband, but will also involve vocational education as well. Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, no, I think you've raised an important question, Kevin, uh, because look, at the end of the day, uh, you don't want to just pay people who are unemployed to stay unemployed. And people uh, you, who are unemployed want to be employed. I have to always get that in. Go ahead. Exactly. Especially this year. Especially this year. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and when we come out of the, the, the public health crisis that we're in, the level playing field is not going to be level. People who have yeah. survived that with jobs are going to be able to recover quicker than those families who are jobless. And so the question is, are those hospitality jobs coming back? Are those commercial real estate jobs coming back? You know, are the travel jobs coming back? And you're going to have right now 10 million people who are going to need a new job. And all those jobs are not coming back right away. And some may not come back at all. I know that's not a popular opinion. But it's but, honest. But what it's do you honest. do with those folks? And yeah. you, and if you do not dedicate government resources, it's mm. unlikely there's going to be other resources that you can find. And maybe at the state level, the governor's yeah. picked this up. All right. Yeah, it's it's a really important point. March is Women's History Month, and Bloomberg Radio was looking back at some of those who have played a vital role in American history. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 2015, Los Angeles celebrates Susan on Cuddy Day. She's the first Asian-American woman to join the U.S. Navy and its first female gunnery officer. Cuddy rose to the rank of lieutenant. She later worked for U.S. Naval Intelligence, the Library of Congress, and the National Security Agency. Cuddy is also the daughter of the first married Korean couple to immigrate to the U.S. She served during World War II. During the first celebration of Susan on Cuddy Day, she was 100 years old. She said when the war came, she was motivated to fight for freedom, and it didn't matter whether she was Asian or not. During her service, Cuddy had to endure segregation and racism and had to marry her Irish-American husband on a naval base because interracial marriages were against the law at the time in Virginia. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And my thanks to you for listening. My thanks to Rick Davis, to Kevin Walling. Still thinking about Roger Mudd and Gwen Ifill. I mean, they, these are just the legends that I grew up with. Whatever happened to them? I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.